This is AMWA Diversity Dialogues, an interdisciplinary podcast designed to facilitate unfiltered conversations highlighting disparities in medicine and population health and what we can do about it. Thank you for joining us another time for another installment of AMWA's Diversity Dialogues. Uh, we are here with who used to be our student leadership, Amen Venud and Ariana Sharak. And they were on a few episodes ago, if you remember, uh, just talking about the work that they have been doing in our AMWA's Council of Diversity and Inclusion and in AMWA in general. And today I am happy to congratulate them as new graduate medical doctors uh, going into the field and getting started in residency very shortly. And so congratulations, ladies, and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, great news, big, big life events, you know, the dream is, is on its way, and, um, and I'm really happy for both of you. So, we can start by just giving us a, a brief uh, background of what medical school you were at and what specialty you applied into and, and matched into. So, we'll start with Ariana. Sure. So I'm a kind of a Michigander for life. So I um, went to undergrad and med school on the east side of Michigan. Uh, I went to Oakland University, William Beaumont School of Medicine in Metro Detroit, about 20 minutes northwest of Detroit. Um, and then I matched into general surgery at Spectrum Health, which is one of the largest health systems on the west side of Michigan. So I'm lo- moving about two hours west now for residency. All right. And what about you, Eamon? Yeah, so I'm actually from Arizona. I went to Arizona State for undergrad, but I also moved up to Michigan for medical school. I was in the same as Ariana was at Oakland University, William Beaumont. And I matched into neurology back home in Arizona um, at Mayo Clinic at the Arizona campus. So I'm really excited about that to be back home. Of course, that's exciting. And so with the year that we've had in, in the world, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, everything pretty much was flipped upside down in terms of uh, residency application cycle. And all, you know, pretty much majority of the interviews that were had and everything was done virtually last year. So how was that uh, experience for you um, in terms of how many interviews were you able to acquire during that process? And how was it like setting up these interviews? Go ahead, Ariana. Sure. So I think our class was in kind of a unique position because the class um, above us had pretty much almost finished everything. Maybe some interviews were virtual and graduation was virtual, but they had gone through a pretty normal process in the fall before the pandemic. And then the class under us kind of knows, you know, how the pandemic is right now, and they're kind of prepared to continue things virtually. For us, I guess the difficult part was to kind of face, like, all of these changes as they were happening. So 
we had away rotations lined up. Those got canceled. We thought the application cycle was going to go through normal, and then it completely changed. So it was a scary time, but I hope for the anybody listening to this who's applying in upcoming cycles, I hope you feel more empowered that um, you kind of have us to look to for virtual cycles. They might have some data out there, so hopefully it'll be an easier process. Um, but I had, um, so instead of doing away rotations, I rotated at my local community hospital that's affiliated with my med school. Worked out awesome, I think. Um, so that was good. That was one thing that I was really stressed about kind of going into the uh, new kind of deconstructed system that ended up working out. And then um, going into the cycle, I applied to 63 schools. And I basically figured that number out based on what other people had applied to. So it didn't change for me with the virtual cycle. I probably would have applied to that many um, going in, you know, with a regular cycle. Um, a lot of first-generation people ask me how you choose programs. I basically met with mentors. I narrowed it down based on geography, knew I wanted to be in the Midwest, East Coast, looked at kind of their scoring and ranking systems, saw if I fit into there, applied to those 63 programs, and I got 40 interviews, which was a pretty good um, you know, pretty good feedback there. Yeah. And so later I'll kind of talk about the virtual interview process. So, you know, doing that many interviews, I had a lot of programs to compare to each other and I have an assessment of kind of the virtual interview process. Okay. And what about you, Amen? Yeah. So I echo a lot of what Ariana said about just the uncertainty of the process. And I know for me, um, neurology is sort of a smaller community. And so I would reach out to the some previous classmates that had already matched, but, and they would try to help me out the best that they could, but didn't really know like what I was getting into, like going into the, the cycle. For neurology, traditionally, you usually apply to around like 20 to 25-ish programs. Um, but I was told that this year people may be over applying. And so I ended up applying to, I want to say 31 programs. And I ended up interviewing um, at 14 of them. Most of them were actually geographically around where I was from because I listed Arizona on my like ERAS application. My goal was to come back to at least the West Coast to be near family. And so for me, it was interesting that a large bulk of the interviews I got, even to some pretty competitive programs, they all were from, um, or the majority were from the West Coast. So I feel like region played a big, big role for me, um, which worked out, I guess, but yeah, that was sort of how I went about it. And for me, my per priorities were um, finding somewhere that was very research oriented because that's an interest of mine. So that's sort of how I sorted through the programs and decided where to specifically apply to. Mm -hmm. Okay. One more thing I'll comment on yeah. too is that there was a really big crisis this year and I know it was in surgery as well of um, basically the interviews were polarized to like the top applicants in the pool. Right. And so there was a big group of people that were getting tons of interviews and there was a big group of people who weren't getting a lot of interviews. And my whole issue was I kind of went into the cycle not knowing what a normal number was, um, not nor realizing that I had more interviews than maybe the average. And to, they came out late, the double AMC and the American College of Surgeons came out really late and said that you need to drop interviews for other students. And it was when probably 90% of my interviews were already done. So for people listening to this podcast, just keep in mind that if you have kind of an overwhelming number of interviews that affects other applicants in the, in the pool and um, kind of just assessing where you stand to see if you want to drop interviews to help out other people. But it was pretty difficult, this cycle, because they didn't announce that until later. And I had no concept of what a normal number of interviews was. 
I'm glad you mentioned that because, yeah, that was something um, even before they came out with that, um, a lot of programs had started to notice what was happening. And it wasn't, you know, they just kind of went about things without considering what these implications would be, that a lot of people would not, you, you know, would not usually accept so many interview offers because you would probably have to travel across the country. It's very expensive. And, you know, some people might turn down certain interviews because of certain factors like that, which were not in play during this cycle because you could do all your interviews from the comfort of your home, <laughs> you know, so... Uh, they didn't consider that. And just so like you were saying, that's what that's what happened. And also, I think I don't know how as an applicant you were supposed to gauge that even if they said that before, you know, what I how am I supposed to control? How do I know which interviews to drop? I'm looking for a chance just like anyone else. How would I know? okay, I need to drop this place and this place for, for who? For a, 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 another applicant that is just a number? I don't, I don't know. You know, so I think, I hope that they can figure that out for this cycle, but we never know. And honest, so in an effort for transparency, and I know in our, in this medical field, there's a lot of, uh, uh, how do you put it? You know, people are kind of very competitive and secretive about how, Things are going in their own personal journey. So I have to share with our listeners that I am also a new graduate MD, and but I did not match. And I applied a bit late in the cycle as well because I'm at a Caribbean medical school, and that's where I graduated from. And the difference, well, you know, there are a lot of differences with my application compared to you, you both. Um, you know, my application, I've been told, will probably get pulled up in the second round of, you know, when they're looking for looking through. And that's fine. And then also uh, you mentioned, Eamon, about being able and both of you about being able to look to your uh, upperclassmen or people who had just gone on before you for advice and direction. Um, and, you know, there are people that you can know and reach out to with the Caribbean medical schools, but it's not the same type of community. You know, once we leave the island and you're at, you know, different clinical sites across the country, you basically lose touch with people unless you run into them on a clinical rotation. And we have like uh, uh, Facebook groups where you can share information and things like that. But, it's you know, it's not the same type of community. So there presents like a difference in how you receive information, how you are able to navigate the process as well. So for me, I applied a little bit late because I was taking step two a little bit later on as well because of the pandemic. And with my past of like testing anxiety, I was like, I don't know if I want to put in applications and then something goes wrong and then, you know, I've wasted my money. So I, I waited and that what what uh, Ariana mentioned, all the interview spots were pretty much filled up by the time that I was applying. And, you know, that's what that's what happens. New territory. And, you know, we just didn't know how things were going to go. So, um, 
Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, these relevant sides to the story about how there can be different applicants, too, in the pool. And uh, that was definitely one of the major changes that occurred over this last cycle. So I just wanted to add, oh, I'm so sorry. No. But something you brought up just made me remember something about this cycle that I, like, totally forgot happened, but... As you guys mentioned, like they released that statement later on in the cycle about like applying to more, I think they said like prelim positions and things like that as well, which was interesting because for me, the majority of neurology programs are categorical, which means for anyone that doesn't know what that means, is you mat if you match to a program, all four years of your residency will be at that program and you're guaranteed, you know, those four years. But there's a small number of programs in neurology that are still advanced and you have to find your own first year preliminary medicine year um, on your own um, or else, you know, you can't really go through the program and graduate. So for me, when I initially applied at the start of the cycle, I applied to like a handful of prelim programs because I just wasn't really sure how many I even needed to apply to. I was only applying to a couple advanced California programs that even required a prelim. And I was like, I don't know if I'll even get these interviews. I have no idea what's going on. Um, but I ended up interviewing at a good amount of advanced programs. And then I was like, oh crap, like I don't have enough prelim interviews at all. I think I only got one out of the initial that I applied to. So I think around, I want to say November, December, it was around the time they released that statement about applying to more prelim programs. I actually applied to some more, hoping that I'd have more of a bank to sort of um, pull from in case I wanted to go to an advanced program. So I think around like November, I submitted like 20 more applications to prelim programs. And honestly, out of all of those, I only got one. And so that just sort of makes me wonder like how helpful it even would have been for people to follow that advice and apply to those programs because I mean this pickings are slim, they're so competitive. Like there's a thousand people literally applying for like one spot and adding more to that is just sort of a waste of money, in my opinion, retrospectively mm -hmm. looking back. So yeah, I just wanted to add that. Yeah, the process is very expensive, uh, <laughs> unbeknownst to a lot of people. Yeah. I think before before we move on, I guess final advice is just apply really smartly in the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, try to apply to enough programs. You know, if you want to overdo it, then underdo it is always a better option because like Eamon said, to apply later is probably not going to pan out. Mm -hmm. You know, if you apply to more programs later, they're going to know that you applied later and they weren't your first pick. So kind of overdo it. I think I definitely overdid it with the 63, but that's better than, you know, underdoing it and not getting interviews. And then I just hope that for the next cycle they have data and you guys have our class to lean on so that you'll have more of an idea of how many you should apply to, you know, based on your stats and everything, how many interviews will you get. And there will be more um, organization of who's getting the interviews and how many, you know, the programs are getting out. Right. That is true. And even the number that you mentioned, it's different for uh, people in my category of international medical grads you know, we're encouraged to apply upward of 100 programs, you know. And if you're, if you even want to uh, apply, like, say, to general surgery, you're still encouraged to apply to family medicine, you know, as well. And that was something that I wasn't up for. But yeah. So uh, moving on. Uh, so how was it doing these virtual interviews? Um, how did you Pre like prepare for these interviews and how 
comfortable were you in in this setting? And Ariana, you can start. Yeah, sure. So I think before we started the interview process, everybody was really focused on the technical aspects. And, oh, God, if your computer goes out or if the Internet doesn't work or if you go in and out, it's going to affect how you are assessed for the program. I think that's very not true. I think everybody's really open and understanding about the Internet situation. I think if you have a totally normal Wi-Fi line that normally works for you for your classes, then you'll be okay. And I'm just saying that because I think it was so heavily emphasized before we started interviewing that I was like so scared something was going to happen. But like something happens, there's a number you can call into, you can interview later at a different time. Everybody, you know, is pretty understanding. So that's one thing. Don't be too stressed about the technicalities of it because they will work out. Um, And then in terms of kind of how I represented myself, I did exactly the same thing as I would for a normal interview. So, you know, practiced questions. I had kind of uh, a few spiels lined out for, you know, really general questions that you normally get. So why are you going into the field you're going into? What was kind of your journey into medicine? Tell me about yourself. Um, Really good advice I got for that question. Tell me about yourself is have three qualities or things that you've done and how they will um, kind of help you for that program. So I think my three qualities were my ethnicity. I'm Chaldean American. Um, my And that's just kind of my ethnicity. I'm first generation. Um, second quality was my dad has a family business, a restaurant that I work at, taught me really strong work ethic to be a general surgeon. And then the third quality was I'm creative. I made jewelry growing up and that made me love surgery. So you can see that I didn't tell you every single thing about myself, but I told you three qualities. You get to know me pretty well, but they also tell you why I want to go into that field. And then one challenge you've gone through, they always ask that, and that's a really tough one, so think about it ahead of time. Think about what you learned from it. Um, You know, I had the same outfit I would have normally um, in terms of, you know, the rest of how you look. People would buy, like, lights and stuff. I don't, you don't need to go through all that. Like, I had a pretty plain background. I think if you have a couple things in your background, it's fine. Do I think you're going to get into residency because you have a cool background? No. Maybe a little (laughs) less distracting is good. Um, that's it. Just prepare how you normally would. Yeah. Okay. And Amen, how about you? Yeah. So for me, I have very bad, like, public speaking anxiety. And so for me, thinking about doing interviews on Zoom, I know Zoom isn't like public speaking, but only one person can talk at a time on Zoom. So I was really apprehensive about that aspect of going into the interview cycle this way, especially for like resident like meetups and things like that, um, that were going to happen on Zoom now. So my first couple interviews, I was pretty like, like very sweaty, very nervous just because of that. Um, but I realized with time that, you know, there's a lot of plus sides to the virtual interviewing, at least for me. Like I was sitting very comfortably in my home. I knew where the bathroom was if I needed to go there. I wasn't like worried about things like being in my teeth or something because I could like quickly look before I logged on. So like small things like that, no like uncomfortable shoes. I think that for me, that really helped me calm down um, and be able to get through the interviews. I know Ariana mentioned like the technical aspects were something that was really blown out of proportion for us, like going into the cycle. And I remember um, before interviews started, there was someone that told me that your background is going to be like a huge like predictive factor of how well you're going to do in interviews. And that really stressed me out because I did all of my interviews from my parents' home and like I don't have any control of like how their decorations and stuff are. And our house is kind of small, so there wasn't really like 
a blank wall that I could sit in front of, you know? So my background was very much like normal. Like you can literally see my bed in the background. I just made sure the bed was made. And I don't think it hindered me in any way either, just like what Ariana was saying. So at least we can have some anecdotal evidence to share with everyone now that your background is probably not going to make or break you (laughs) as long as there's nothing like obscene in the background going on. Right. Yeah. um, As far as questions, I feel like Ariana hit a lot of the main ones. I think for neurology, at least a lot of the one, uh, one that I got asked a lot was how do you work in teams and tell me about a difficult time specifically in a team scenario that you had and how you overcame that. Um, and then also just some sometimes like really random questions. Someone told me to prepare for like what animal would you be if you could be any animal or like what part of a bike would you be if like you could be a part of a bike. Um, those are just things people told me going in and weird questions like that did end up popping up. So Sometimes there's weird stuff like that. And also hobbies was a big thing too. Um, So just being able to talk about that. But yeah, that was my experience. I liked it more than I thought I would. Mm -hmm. And I'm taking notes, by the way, okay, for for next cycle. And yeah, it's good to know because, you know, uh, and I thought about it during the cycle. I'm like, what do they expect? We're medical students. I don't have my own home office that's very professionally set up to to conduct an interview you know so you do the best that you can you just look make it presentable you know as much as you can I think that yeah should be should be good enough I don't think not bringing my background to residency with with me (laughs) yeah so you know from a from a diversity and inclusion uh lens you know uh a lot of times you know historically people have talked about certain of experiences they might have had on interviews. And uh, I was reading that a lot of uh, differences that they anticipated was that you were not going to be able to judge, you know, the cultural uh, scene at this program because you're not there in person to kind of mingle around everyone and see how things are. And, you know, not be able to maybe appreciate or, you know, observe certain microaggressions that might take place depending on the program that you were at. Uh, So I wanted to ask, you know, if you were able to properly gauge the culture of the programs that you were interviewing at, and were there any instances where you felt that some of some of the behaviors or the questions were uh, inappropriate or you know, uh, offensive from a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective. And Ariana? Sure. So I have a lot to say about this because this is, uh, you know, went through the cycle and I was a, you know, diversity champion. I think I'm a minority. So I had a, I, I have a little bit of a different lens, I guess, for this. I don't know if it'll impact everybody this way, but my whole thing was I'm a minority, you know, first generation female going into surgery. I'm very passionate about diversity and inclusion. I hope to, um, if I take an administrative role as a surgeon, I think it'll be in diversity and inclusion. And so it was maybe more important to me than other people to have established programs and to have evidence that the program was welcome to that. Um, So it kind of went into the the interview cycle with the mentality, like this is, these are my goals and you're either along for the ride with me or you're not. And if you're not, then you're not the program for me. So I, um, 
was pretty transparent in my application that I was a minority. Um, it was in my whole personal statement, told my background that I was first generation, everything that I had overcome cultural barriers within my own culture to pursue surgery and had faced bias from within my own community. So that was kind of the first step. And then the second step was just kind of the conversation piece within the interview. So some people ask you where you're from. Um, I told you when people asked me to tell me something about myself, you know, two things I said were I'm Chaldean American. I explained what my ethnicity was because a lot of people didn't know. And then I explained that I'm first generation and the barriers that I overcame to get into surgery. And then I would ask questions of um, if I could do research projects that were involved in diversity inclusion, if there were programs. I think we started med school at a really unique time. We started the interview process and we're starting residency at a unique time as well with the, um, you know, all of the uh, current political environment and everything. And so I kept a lens out for, as an AMWA, we do, we have a diversity program that's super strong. You know, we've been around, we are doing projects on the ground. And so I had to keep a lens out. Or is this diversity program something that started two months ago in response to the murder of George Floyd? Um, is this genuine? Is this something that's been going on? Is this something that's kind of uh, like a program is trying to save face? So they started this and is it going to die out? So I think that's something to keep in mind as well. You know, there was a couple programs where I could see that they had surgery residents taking years off to do um, you know, racial inequity research and things like that was very well established. And then other programs that had a, a committee formed a month ago, and it was obvious that they had done it in response to the current political environment. So that was one thing. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of, uh, you're going to see that every interview has a social event tied to it. It's kind of exhausting. So every, you know, for me, every single night before I had a social event, um, not every specialty, I guess, is like that from talking to people, but for surgeries, like every single program had this social event the night before. And I would just kind of watch the language of the, the residents that they would use. And so I had, um, you know, I had encounters where one program I specifically remember, my best friend going through med school was Mormon. I learned a lot about the religion in the community. And I feel, you know, we feel really connected to each other's cultures. And I remember I went to an interview where they made fun of the Mormon community and it just stuck in my mind. And I thought, I don't know if I want to be at a program that does something like that. Lots of um, different residents. And I have this theory that being virtual almost uh, makes it more informal. So a lot of times the laptop is in the resident's lounge and they're saying more informal things. So you might actually, I have this theory that you might actually see more microaggressions, biases in the virtual environment than you do in the um, in-person environment where you're out and they're kind of turned on. They know you're there. They're dressed up a certain way. Um, so, you know, lots of comments against the LGBTQ community, um, against, you know, different minority communities. And so you just keep a lookout for that and I would mark it down and the program would definitely drop on my list if I heard comments that I didn't like. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And that's uh, not something that I would have expected, you know, but but you you do make a good point. You know, people have gotten kind of used to be being on Zoom and it feels like a more relaxed environment. You know, you only have to dress up from the top up. So, <laughs> you know, like people get really relaxed and forget what's going on. And and maybe in that relaxed environment, you know, the truths might be um, might be uh, more evident. Yeah. So, uh, Amen, you want to share your um, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, so it makes me really sad to hear like the experience that 
you know, Ariana was talking about, because I, I feel like if I had that same experience, it would have, you know, been really difficult for me to continually like keep interviewing and going through that every day. For me, I think this may speak a little more to like the culture and neurology. Um, it is, I think, a little more diverse, like ethnic, ethnically and racially um, compared to some other specialties. So I think that's why I, there was a lot of the programs I interviewed at had some sort of diversity initiative going on. And if they um, didn't have one, they were very transparent about wanting to support that kind of work. And for me, at least, I felt like they were being genuine. Um, I don't know, but I didn't really face many microaggressions. I think what Ariana said about everything being a little more informal in the sense that you're in your home, you're more comfortable. There were times where I got asked some questions that maybe I shouldn't have been asked, like if I was single or if I was married, if I had like any kids. Um, and I some people asked me that very directly and I was taken aback a little bit because I know those aren't questions that are necessarily supposed to be asked during the interview. Um, so I faced a little bit of that, but that was, you know, a minority of the experiences I had. And I think the, the one question that I got that was um, not a question you're supposed to ask, but I got it quite frequently was where else I was interviewing. Um, so that was a little uncomfortable because like, how do you really circumvent that? And I feel like that might have been because the programs were genuinely curious about like how the interview process was playing out because no one like they were just as clueless as we were going into this interview cycle. So I don't think it necessarily came from a, a place of malintent or anything like that. But yeah, I think for neurology, at least the whole environment was a little more um, comfortable and welcoming than some other specialties may have been. So but it is important to always keep an eye out. And like Ariana said, if you don't like something that a program said, or they don't, you don't like how they treated you, then you don't need to go there because you're a peace of mind and your respect is really important. Yeah, I, I agree. And the, so Ariana, how, how would you deal with any specific questions that are showing the biases um, from a particular program? Yeah, so, um, and this kind of applies everywhere because I've had people who I've seen kind of on rotations as well where they feel like if they're a minority, um, you know, I've had lots of students come to me and say, I feel like my worth is questioned at certain times. Um, or I feel like I don't belong. I feel like there's environmental microaggressions because nobody looks like me. And so I had one specific instance in my interviews where this is highlighted and I'll kind of say how I dealt with it and how I recommend students to deal with all types of microaggressions, even if you're rotating on the floors and whatnot. Um, so I went through the interview. It was totally normal. You know, ask questions, go back and forth. And then at the end, the program director said to me, I see you do a lot of diversity and inclusion work. I see that you're from a minority community. And I don't know how to take those things into account in assessing you for my program. And I remember he said, you know, for example, we don't have any African-American students in our program at this time. And I just don't know how to, this is um, kind of a quote from him, I don't know how to judge these students against other students. And I don't know if I should take an ethnicity um, into account in ranking students higher than other students. And so um, in my mind, I got a little nervous because I thought, you know, um, how do I respond? This is really awkward. Um, I was offended. I felt offended by the question because um, in every other interview, when I talked about my race and ethnicity, it was just kind of a fun conversation point of I talked about who I was. It was also a way for me to talk about the, the cultural barriers I faced to getting into surgery. 
And it was a way to a starting point of why I was so passionate about diversity and inclusion and the work I wanted to continue as a surgery resident. So I was offended by the question, um, took a step back and just thought for a second. And I thought, you know, I can either back down to him and kind of just go along with what he's saying and kind of avoid the situation and get out of the interview, or I can kind of stand my ground and, and respond to him. So I decided to stand my ground and respond to him. I'm not going to lie. I did decide to do that because I had a pretty good response in the interview cycle. And I knew that if I needed to throw this program off my rink list, I could do that. And so I really feel for people if that was their one interview and that situation had happened. I really feel for people because it's a really scary situation to be in. So I kind of proceeded by saying, you know, you asked me who I was and you told me to tell you about my family and myself in the beginning of this talk. And I cannot tell you who I am without telling you my race and ethnicity. Um, and I kind of proceeded to tell him, you know, if you, I'm from a Middle Eastern community. And I said, if you live in an area where we are, you know us from a hundred miles away. And I kind of made a joke about it. I said, we have the best food. We're really loud. We have a church community. All our friends are from this community. Like you'll know us from a mile away. So I kind of made a joke like that, but I also was standing my ground. Like you asked me who I am and I'm telling you. And then I proceeded to tell him and I tell students you let your objective measure shine through. So I told him, if you strip my whole application of my race and ethnicity, I'm qualified to be here. I've been working since I was 16 years old to be a surgeon. My board scores shine through. My research shines through. You see, I have these measures to be qualified to be here. And so it doesn't matter what my race and ethnicity is um, because I'm qualified to be a surgeon and I'm qualified to be accepted to your surgery residency program. And I said, I recommend, you know, for you to move forward that you, uh, you stick to the objective measures and really assessing people. Um, and then I proceeded to tell him that I'm passionate about diversity and inclusion. And so, you know, kind of my whole spiel, if you're either down to go with me into the great things that I'm going to do in this field, you know, bringing diversity and inclusion into surgery, or you're not, and you're going to kind of miss out. Um, and so I always recommend students, you know, if somebody tries to judge your worth in a field based on your race and ethnicity, you pull them back to the objective measures. And I know we're taught to be humble, but this is your moment to brag and kind of hold your head high and stand your ground that you belong here and you're smart, qualified, and you belong in this field. I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Uh, you know, that is something that I have been, you know, grappling with mentally over the past few months um, about how to respond to certain things like that, you know, and I didn't have any interviews, but, you know, in trying to network and talking to different people, I've gotten very uh, similar feedback, you know, about my, my race and, you know, where I went to school and, you know, things like, and my background. And so things like that, I, I, I usually, you know, I, I did err to the side of I'm going to, you know, to stand up for myself. I'm not going to let someone try to diminish my accomplishments and my work so far uh, and and put that into a box because of how they feel about my my race and where I went to school and all of these things. And I even recently I said to my sister, she started a, a registered nurse anesthetist program and I'm looking at the things that she's going through you know just being you know in the medical field in general there's a lot of little you know hazing that goes on you know this happened to me so I'm gonna you're gonna have to go through this too 
And I don't understand that mentality. And I've been saying to her that, you know, outside of things that are for your educational benefit and things that are objective to what you're trying to accomplish, I, looking back at my experience, I would, I wish I had stood up for myself a little bit more in the times where uh, things were clearly unnecessary, you know, and like the behavior was clearly biased and, you know, and was not, had nothing to do with my educational goals, you know, or, or what was objective and what I was bringing to the table. And, um, and so I'm really glad that you mentioned that. And I'm really happy that you were able to do that. And, you know, true to what you're saying as well, not everyone might be comfortable doing that based off of how many interviews they might be working with, you know, what other odds are against them. And and that's unfortunate. But I really hope that if this happens to someone else, they can find a way to to still stand up for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think how you said you've kind of erred on the side of standing up for yourself. I think that's the best thing to do. Um, so with this program, I totally, I closed out the Zoom and I went upstairs. It was like Thanksgiving and I told my mom, like, I totally blew it. Like that, inter- <laughs> like that program's just done. Like they're not going to call me. And they ended up recruiting me. They had two residents call me like throughout the whole process. They eat that program director emailed me and said, you were highly recommended by all of your interviewers and we'd love to have you here. So I think that, you know, on the spectrum of kind of being a scared student who doesn't speak up and being somebody who, um, you know, on the other end of the spectrum is you kind of, you know, run your mouth too much. And I've definitely done that. And it's taken me time to really mature into the kind of this middle zone of, you know, I don't back down completely. I don't, you know, speak and kind of run my mouth too much, but I'm in the middle where I hold my ground in a respectful, calm manner. I, you know, I speak articulate, you know, I articulate my words in the proper way. Um, and I think, you know, even if you have one interview and you stick up for yourself, you know, this program ended up recruiting me when I did. Maybe it was a test and he was trying to see if I was going to crack under the pressure. I'm not sure. But I think I recommend to all students definitely, you know, stick up for yourself. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because I was thinking that, too. I was like, that's such a, a very uh, weird and interesting question for somebody in that position to ask. It's as if do you have no uh, concept of these topics that like why would you ask that and it's it's, yeah you're right it's possible that it could have been uh you know a test to see how you hold your own but you know you never know there it could have also been a reflection of of their biases as well and yeah you have to find a way to represent yourself um in a way that uh, is proud and but also respectful to the person that you're you're speaking to as well, and a lot of times it's hard to find that middle ground because you get a, if you get offended and then you react emotionally and then that's no good, right? And that that could also be telling for a program director too. You know, this person is is too you know they're getting too emotional or whatever the case might be. And, you know, also thinking about it, too, if if someone is asking a question like that and you do have to assert yourself respectfully, I think also, you know, do I even want to be at a program that's going to that really feels this way? If it's not the case where this was some kind of a, a trick or a test question, do, would I really want to end up here anyway? So, you know, I, I speak my truth and 
you know, you let the car- the cards fall where they may. <laughs> but that's yeah, interesting. I think, too, um, I think he was genuinely wanting to increase diversity in the program. And I think that's why he was asking. But I think he asked in an offensive way. But I ended up finding out later from other programs who do diversity and inclusion really well that handbooks exist for program directors on stuff like this. So I think, you know, if somebody, you know, if there's a anybody listening that's a program director, there are resources that exist for you to kind of gauge, um, you know, diversity and inclusion, a lens of it in your um, recruiting process. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think that, you know, he was probably came from a well-intentioned place and it came off wrong. Yeah. And I want to share a bit, too, about, you know, from my perspective, too, going into the interview uh, season or into the cycle and even going back in this year. um, One of the things that I was, you know, that was what I noticed over the years is like a lot of black women like myself who have uh, natural hair, wear their their hair big and, and, you know, in braids or other things in real life. They change the way they look for their their uh, their photo for application um, for interviews over the years. You know, it's the you know the the slicked back ponytail or you know straightened hair. And my hair is big and curly, and I love to wear my hair big and curly. And I actually have color in my hair, too. (laughs) And I decided when I was going to take my application photo, I was like, you know, I'm going to wear my hair the way that I like to wear it best, you know, in its natural state, curly, and in, in a neat way that I consider to be neat for my hair. And that's how I decided to take my picture. And I, you know... I still got feedback like, oh, are you sure you don't want to pull it back in a ponytail? Are you sure you don't want to like blow dry your hair out straight for this picture? And I was like, no, this is this is who I am. When I go to this residency program that picks me, this is who I'm going to show up as every day. So they might as well know who I am. And I want to be at a program that accept, accepts me this way. And I even plan that, you know, when I do do interviews, of course, it's going to be the same thing. I'm going to keep my hair the way that I believe is what represents me, you know, that I believe is presentable. And it's not the same for every ethnicity. So, you know, that's one of those things that's like out there where people have to get out of their head that one look of, you know, straight hair ponytail is the look of professionalism, you know? So that's just one thing I wanted to share. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I totally love that you brought that up. So we're on a podcast, so you can't see me, but I'm a Middle Eastern <laughs> woman. I have the curliest hair ever and it's super <laughs> frizzy and it's not tameable and I never straighten it. So like you said, like this is my normal hair. I like kind of tie it back. Um, but I had the same, you know, thing where I, when I go into the OR, I don't wear makeup and I have my hair curly and I have it pearled you know, pulled back and like you said, contained for what I find to be, you know, well for my hair. Right. Um, and I had a lot of people who said, oh, you're rocking the natural hair. And I was like, this is just my hair. This is what it looks like every day. And I had <laughs> other women who were applying who would message me and say, oh, you know, I'm thinking about not straining my hair and rocking natural hair for the next interview because you are. But you know what? I Same exact thing. Like, this is who they're going to get. Um, you know, in the residency, and I wanted them to know, like, you're getting a frizzy-haired, you know, curly, black-haired, Middle Eastern woman. This is what I look like, and this mm-hmm. is what the patients are going to see. So, you know, right. the same thing, too, with your personality. So I use a lot of humor. I'm like, you know, I come from my family as a restaurant, first generation, and I just 
sometimes I feel like I just speak differently than people in the medical community. I kind of had to learn to have medical jargon and speak a little more polished than I normally do in my real life. But when I'm with patients, I, I totally, or my teammates, I kind of, I talk more informally, I think, than a lot of medical community people do. And when I went into the interviews, I just continued that. And I used my humor. And I think I had interviewers laughing. I remember I interviewed at this, like, really academic, like, really highly ranked program. They put me in with the chair of the department and the program director and these, like, two surgeons who have, like, done world-renowned work. And they're like, what else, you know, would you do with your life if you didn't go into medicine? And I was like, you know, legit, like probably public health or something like that. But like my passion is bears. And like I would get a PhD in bears. And I started talking <laughs> to these like two real world-renowned surgeons about like polar bears and how I'm so into them. And I used to volunteer at the zoo and like wear this ridiculous T-shirt. And they're just like cracking up all of a sudden. And like yeah. I come back into the main session and she's like, what'd you do to them? Like they're just cracking up. So I think, you know, Beyond even just the hair, like have that natural personality, you know, don't be afraid to kind of go against the norm of what you think the field is like. Right. And and that's true. And that's um, one of those things, too, where uh, I was applying into surgery uh, in the last cycle. And I also I got a lot of um, negative feedback as a woman, as a black woman applying into general surgery. Um, you know, you know, there were, of course, there are the ones that are like, oh, yeah, we do need more black women and women in general surgery. But then a lot of them are just like, oh, so you don't you don't want to have a family. You don't plan on on getting married and having children. And I'm like, what does that have to do with what I said I'm applying into? <laughs> you know, and I understand that they're they're reflect they're trying to present what's reflected as the the lifestyle of a general surgeon, you know, and it's, you know, presented as a, a boys club and, uh, you know, a man's game. But, you know, that's that's not true. And, you know, I don't some people don't mean to be offensive. And, and a lot of this came from other uh, physicians, um, uh, older white male physicians as well, directly to my face would say would ask me those questions like, oh, you don't want to have a family. You don't want to. You know, you want it's just too many men in this field. So I don't know how you're going to survive and things like that. So there's a lot of these little uh, things that are said to us as women, especially going into the medical field and depending on what specialty uh, you choose. You know, was that your experience, Ariana, with, you know, applying into general surgery? How was that? <laughs> I mean, that's been my whole life, honestly, coming from kind of a, a more uh, conservative community where just, you know, cousins, aunts, uncles, friends, everybody just told you you're not going to make it or you're not going to have kids or rumors were spread about me from family members that I didn't want kids just because I said I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, so I think, you know, my advice is always find those mentors at every single stage of your life who represent different parts of your life that you want. So for me going into the application cycle, you know, if somebody had previously made a comment to me, like the ones that you had just said, I mean, I'm not going to go seek out advice from them later on, right? Mm -hmm. Unless they, you know, have some other skill that's really important to me or whatnot. But, you know, for the application cycle, I found uh, I had two female surgeons who mentored me, so they totally got it. I had one um, male surgeon who mentored me, but he was from a minority community and he had kind of similar diversity and inclusion views as me. So he helped me choose programs in areas that I felt like I'd probably fit in and programs where he heard that they were more welcoming to um, projects in diversity and inclusion. And then I had another mentor who was, uh, you know, not, not any uh, type of 
demographic similar to me, but he was just incredible. He fostered my interest in surgery. I couldn't ask him about having kids or getting pregnant or getting illegal questions about pregnancy and interview cycle. But like, dang, he advocated for me and wrote me a great letter and said I had great technical skills and he just wanted me to do well. It didn't matter if we had the same demographics or not. So you find those mentors who want you to succeed. You find mentors you have similarities with, you hang on to them. And those are the people who help you. And anybody else you have to work with who's kind of not on the same page, you do your best. You know, you work really hard. You set a good impression. You're respectful. And you kind of move on. And you know that that's not somebody that you're going to be getting letters from or meeting with and asking for, you know, advice and uh, choosing programs and things like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So let's let's move on. We're coming towards the end. And so, of course, at the end of, you know, having interviews, uh, the process is to to rank, um, you know, the programs that you interviewed at and, you know, the other, the programs will inter- will rank the people that they interview and the magical algorithm matches us to, <laughs> to the program that we will spend the next few years of our lives training. So how was this ranking process, um, for you guys during, uh, the pandemic and did you feel confident with your rank list? And if so, like, what were the things that made you confident about putting a program where you put them? Or if you were less confident, what were those factors? And I will start with Eamon. Yeah, so I feel like going into the process, I had this idea in my mind before I interviewed that, okay, if I interview at XYZ place, like they're going to the top of my list, like regardless, because they're close to home, blah, blah, blah. But then when I actually interviewed there were certain programs I interviewed at that were far from home, but the like faculty was so diverse. There were people that I really connected with when I was speaking to them. Like the program directors were great and from the same um, ethnic background as I was. And comparatively, other programs that were close to home, although I had gone into the cycle thinking, okay, like this is where I'm going to go, it was sort of different when I interviewed because there wasn't as much ethnic diversity, racial diversity, religious diversity, because my religion is a big thing for me. So that made it really difficult when it came time to ranking. And I don't know if Ariana and you felt the same way, but for me, a lot of the interviews sort of melted together by the end. It was a lot of like the same, like, oh, wow, like I'm meeting all these people. They're really nice. And okay, now the day is over and now it's time for a new interview. So they're not being able to actually visit the locations. And I think that was sort of difficult for me when it came to ranking because I was like, well, I loved all of these programs. Like most of these I would love to be at. So now like, how do I know what to rank first? Um, for me, ultimately being close to family was how I ranked the, my ranked my list, but it was really difficult for me to you know, say no to some of those East East Coast programs that had a lot of opportunities and a lot of diversity in the area. And that I could really see myself like finding good mentors. So I don't know, it's definitely tough. And I don't know if there's like a good answer for how to make those decisions. I know one of my friends, she had um, like a bar graph that she made and that bar graph had like rankings for different things that she thought were important so like mentors location all of those things and she sent that to me to try to like help me figure out what to rank and in what order but I think ultimately it's sort of your gut feeling and you sort of have to take a chance to that's how I felt ranking my programs and ultimately I'm really happy with where I ended up 
but um, it was kind of nice knowing that, you know, there's a lot of good options out there. And if you don't get your top choice, you know, maybe one of somewhere else may be better and it might be, you know, there's good things about every program, I guess. So I guess on rank or sorry, on match day, when we were going to find out where we ended up, I was like, okay, like if I don't get my number one, then like there's good things about every program on my list. At least that's, you know, how I went about it. Um, just so I wouldn't be disappointed with what the, the, the revelation was, but I mean, I'm pretty happy with how it ended up. That's good to hear. And what about you, Ariana? Yeah. So I think, um, something really important Eamon said is kind of like, I went into the cycle with a lot of expectations of where I wanted to go and became really disappointed in the middle of the interview cycle, just because things were so different than I thought, you know, programs far, I wanted to stay so close to home. I had like specific programs that I liked that were close to home. And then, you know, I started interviewing and I loved programs that were far away and they weren't close to home. And the ones that maybe I thought I wanted to go to, I was like, oh, I just didn't feel it. And so I really, really highly recommend, like, don't have expectations and focus on the positive of every single program. First of all, like matching in any program of your, you know, field of choice is amazing. So that's one thing. And then just try to find the positive of if you matched into all those, like there's something positive about all of it. Um, And, you know, my whole fear was that I'd have to move away from home and I'm moving a couple hours away. So it's not close to home. People were like completely shocked when they saw my match and I was leaving because I was totally the person that like would never leave the east side of Michigan. Um, So I think, yeah, just don't have expectations. And then when I really came down to the ranking list, Geography actually became a little less important. Gen Surge is a totally weird field where you can do a community program five years, you can do a seven-year academic program, or you can do a hybrid program. And not every specialty is like that. So there's more to consider in a field such as this one where you have to choose kind of your length of program in academic versus community. Um, But I realized I wanted a hybrid program where I could opt into research years or opt out of them. So that became important. Um, And then the diversity and inclusion stuff became really important. So if I knew that I could do research or there was stuff going on, you know, stuff that had impressed me that made a program go higher. Once I had like a few logistical boxes that I clicked, it was honestly just on the feel. So, you know, they say virtual interviews. We all thought that you couldn't get a feel of the program. Personally, I thought you could just comparing all the programs I interviewed at. There were some where I was like, oh, these, these are my people. Even over Zoom, they're my people. And then over Zoom, like these are not my people, right? So you can do fancy bar graphs and Excel sheets. I really tried. But at the end of the day, I had a running rank list. And like after I'd interview, I'd be like, did I feel more like, you know, fuzzy, warm and fuzzy after this interview than this program? Okay, move them a little higher. So I think a lot of it, you know, have those like few specific logistical things you really need to check. And then after that, like, it's just kind of a feel thing. You can, you can count and you could see if you get free lunch and free parking and write all that down and everything. But, you know, it's, it's not like that, actually. Something I did do, though, in choosing programs, if you go on the AAMC Residency Navigator, I think it's the AAMC. It's a Residency Navigator on ERAS or AAMC. Yeah. They will tell you the race and ethnicity in the female um, versus male. That was something I did use. I did want a program that was a little more balanced in terms of gender. I didn't want to go to a program and be the only female. And so I would use that tool a little more and kind of see based on my Excel sheet if when I met the residents, if I got kind of a similar feel to the data. So that's one other um, tool that, can, that you can use. You can look at how many people are part of each race. It's pretty limited, the categories, but better than absolutely nothing, I guess. Yeah. 
yeah, you know, free parking and food are definitely high up there on the list. <laughs> but, you know, you guys sound exactly, uh, and it's good to hear uh, from, you know, people who have gone through the actual experience and ranked and matched. Um, that is true. Our, our residency um, application advisor says the same thing. Uh, rank with your heart, rank with your, your gut feeling. And, you know, you can you can consider all these other technical issues, but rank, you know, based off of how you felt about the program and how you felt your interview went and, you know, how that 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 gut feeling that you have. So it's good to hear you guys uh, echo the same uh, types of sentiments about that. Yeah, one piece of advice I actually got going in that helped me out, like if I liked a program, on paper, a lot of the neuro that were very similar. That was really big for me was making sure culture I was going into was going to be very supportive and it was going to be nice. Um, and one piece of advice I was during the rest to really pay attention to how residents talk to each other. Um, not necessarily how they talk to us because they're all going to be nice to us, but how they were with each other. So I'd pay attention like, oh, like are the female residents getting as much of a chance to talk as the male residents and things like that. And that really helped me gauge how comfortable I'd feel at a place as well. Or if the residents were like joking around with each other, okay, that means they sort of are friendly with each other. Because there were some programs where some of the residents on the hangouts didn't even know each other or like they weren't joking around. You could just tell they weren't friends or friendly. And for me, that was a big thing. So that was a helpful way to gauge as well, the culture a little bit. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So you can, that, you can see that a lot too in the social events. So something for me, like I'm a little more like I know um, I'm not married. And so wherever I was going to go, I was going to go and kind of live alone. Um, but I knew that most of my friends in med school had been married with kids and I wanted more of a family environment, even though I don't have a family of my own yet. And so I'd go to some programs where the majority of the residents were single. The social night was like a drinking event and a lot of them had drank more versus, a, you know, a lot of the other programs that appealed to me more were kind of they had more families, like there were babies on the call. Um, there were some single people, but they were all hanging out together at each other's houses. And so you'll see kind of what your vibe is and you'll get that feel just like Eamon said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, yeah. And that's very important, you know, in overall the culture of where you're going to go. Will you fit in? You know, will you be comfortable? Yeah. So one that's funny that you Oh, go ahead. I'm so sorry. No, but no, continue, continue. I, it's <laughs> funny that you mentioned like the drinking and stuff because they're, I'm Muslim and we, I mean, I don't drink for religious purposes. And it was interesting because some of the programs I interviewed at, they would be very heavily focused on like, okay, like what is everyone drinking? Like what alcoholic beverage is everyone <laughs> drinking? And I remember one time I was like, oh, like I have my Gatorade and everyone was like, why are you drinking Gatorade? Like, where's your alcohol, blah, blah, blah. And so things like little things like that, I was like, oh, I don't know, like how comfortable I'd feel here if they're like questioning me for my beverage choice. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that just came to my mind. <laughs> that, yeah, that, and that's that's a good point because, you know, you, if that's not, you know, up on your priority list and, and they seem to be so, you know, and it, it probably is just to, like we said, people feel more informal and casual on Zoom, even though I've heard that in the past with those social events for in-person, that you had to be careful of, you know, this, those pre-interview dinners where there was alcohol available 
And, you know, some people, even applicants, would get a little carried away with mingling with the residents as they were drinking a lot. And next thing you know, you've gotten carried away with that. And it's, you know, it's no good for for you in the long run. So, yes, that's I can see how that can be different as well. So the last thing I wanted to touch on, you know, just wrapping up, you know, graduation. Um, a lot of places are not having a in-person graduation. Same uh, for me, my school, we're doing a virtual graduation this year. I got my cap and gown and they want me to do uh, recordings of myself walking towards the camera and then recordings of myself getting hooded and handed my diploma. And then another recording where we're like reciting the Hippocratic Oath, like line by line. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is a lot. This is really different, you know? And I, I'm, I was just going to get the cap and gown just to take some pictures so like, I can have them, you know, for my family and things like that. But you know, it's such an interesting time to be in with this change. So how are your medical schools handling uh, this uh, change? Are you having in person or virtual? And what's that like for you and your family? Ariana? Yeah, so um, we had kind of a, we had an outdoor drive through graduation. Um, and I think probably only a third of the class came because a lot of people were out of state and they were gone by then. And a lot of people said um, we had just gone through a really large third wave of cases in Michigan and it had just dipped down at that point. Um, and they had the CDC had just come out with the new mask guidelines like right before. So people really didn't have time to prepare for the event. Um, I had gone. So I was, it was a drive through event. I thought it was I thought it was amazing. Honestly, I loved it. I loved having something versus nothing. Um, I did not, you know. I'd rather have it be outside than have it be on a camera just because this process has been exhausting and I'm like so zoomed out that like I just wanted to enjoy this event with my family. Um, I think I'm first generation. I'm the first person to be a doctor in my family. So it's a pretty big deal. I think I had a lot of classmates who like flippantly said they weren't going to come or it was like a stupid event and they wouldn't show up. And I, it's just kind of offensive to somebody like me who, you know, my whole family is so proud and wants to be there to see like somebody in their family graduate as a doctor. So, um, yeah, I think it's such a bummer that it's virtual for a lot of schools. And I just hope that, you know, moving forward, we can get back to celebrating this really important event, especially for minority and first generation students, where it's just so important to celebrate something like this. Yeah, I agree. Um, I am also a first generation uh, medical graduate. And, uh, you know, prior to this, you know, my whole family was pretty much planning to fly to New York for my graduation, whether or not they were going to be able to get into the actual ceremony, but everyone was planning to be in the same city so we could have a big celebration, you know, and so that's not happening. And so, you know, I at least said, at least if it's virtual, I'm going to do the these tedious videos because at least for my family to have something to look at and something to, to celebrate with, you know? So I, I agree with that. And what about you, Eamon? Yeah, so I went to the same school as Ariana, oh, but okay. I didn't, I wasn't physically at her graduation. So I watched it virtually. So I can give that perspective because mm -hmm. they um, broadcast basically most of it. Um, and so that, I mean, I thought that was way better than I thought it was going to be watching it online. 
Um, they even they said everyone's names. They called us all doctor. My parents got to watch that, you know, like on their own time. And then we actually went back and like rewinded it and like watched it again, like over and over again. So that was kind of nice. Um, we got to watch all the speeches. I think it was really well made. So I think when I first heard that, you know, like it's going to be a drive through graduation, I didn't feel comfortable having my family fly all the way from Arizona to Michigan where our school was, which is why I, attend, I decided not to attend physically. Mm-hmm. But I think they did a really good job of broadcasting it and making us all feel like, you know, we're graduating. So it was an overall good experience. It was a little sad for me just because um, I have a lot of friends that go to med school in Arizona and COVID just hasn't been as bad here um, as of lately. So their graduations were all like physically in person. They just wore masks. So like seeing those pictures and seeing that, I was like, oh, like I wish I had something that I could easily go to with my family as well. But ultimately, I'm happy. I think they did a good job and it feels really great, you know, to look back and be able to watch it over and over again. So, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. And that's understandable. Yeah, I, I understand that. It's hard to travel at this time as well, too, you know. Yeah. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Like I said, I was taking notes. I'm going to be ready for this next uh, interview cycle. <laughs> and um, and I'm really happy for you guys, you know, to have uh, made it this far and completed this part of the journey, uh, you know, doctors uh, going into residency. And this is such an exciting time for you. Uh, and so any other advice, you know, you guys have been given really good advice so far. Any last advice to wrap up for the applicants in this upcoming cycle, like myself. I Uh, think just take take a deep breath and just really like read over your application, realize how much you've done and be like, wow, like I got this and I'm going to do great. I wish I had told myself that and really believed it at the start of the cycle because I went in thinking, oh my God, like everything's going to be terrible and I'm not like good enough to be here and all of that. And with time, I realized that, no, like, I do deserve to be here, and it's all going to be okay. So just really, like, tell yourself that. Like, wake up every morning, look in the mirror, and be like, wow, I got this. I'm going to do great. It's going to be okay. And I think that'll do a lot for just, like, anxiety levels and mental health going through the process. Because it is, unfortunately, a stressful process. Um, but you don't deserve, you deserve the best. So just tell yourself that. Thanks. Ariana? <laughs> Yeah, I think the same. I think, you know, you're incredible. And I'm so proud of like both of you on this call and all the other people tuning into the call for how far you've made it. So proud of the first generation and minority students who have overcome so many barriers and who represent us every day. I think that's amazing. And if you're listening and you're going into the upcoming cycle, I just I see and I hear you and I know it's just so much less fun and, you know, so much more stressful to go through this process. And Sometimes you just need to meet up with the closest people to you and just vent about that. I remember after match day, it was virtual. We were supposed to be in a hotel normally, and it was virtual. And I remember I wanted to buy a house. That was the whole thing is I wanted to get into like five-year residency and buy a house. And the housing market was just so horrible, and I couldn't get a house, and I got an apartment. I remember I just called up like my med school classmate who was also having the same issue, and we just vented. We're so just ticked off about it, but... You know, it's, I'm always here for you if you ever want to talk about it. And I see and I hear you that some things are less fun. But at the end of the day, like, we're here. We became MDs. And it's just the greatest accomplishment of your life. And just be excited and move forward and know that things are going to get better. Yeah. 
Thank you. And I, I'm sure the other applicants listening are grateful for everything that you both have shared today on the podcast. So thank you so much for all, all the work that you guys have been doing with AMWA. And I know you guys are going to continue to be involved as best as you can going forward. So it was really great to have you both on again, Dr. Venud and Dr. Chirac. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to be with us again. Thank you for having Brown. <laughs> all right. AMWA Diversity Dialogues is a podcast created by the Section of Diversity and Inclusion from the American Medical Women's Association. Thanks for tuning in.